Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. Well, welcome everyone. So, I think I've seen most of you, but just in case, my name's Father Mike Walker. And uh, a, a little bit about my background, and I'll talk a little more about my method and my style and all that, so you can kind of get a feel for that. Um, but I was originally going through business school and then switched to seminary. So, when I went back to seminary, I decided to major, well, at that time you get a master's degree. You can, you can get different options like theology or scripture or um, there was another one in there too. But anyway, I picked scripture. I found it uh, to be an interesting thing. So, so anyway, what we're going to do in the next couple of weeks is we're going to go through the entire Old Testament. And obviously you realize it's a big book, so we can't do all of it with like minute detail. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to brush over some things and I'm going to focus in on a few other things. Um, My goal is that at the end of it, you've got a good general overall knowledge so you can pick up the Bible, read it anywhere in the Old Testament and have an idea of what you're reading. So that's my general goal. There are going to be times when you may think this is over my head. Uh, Don't worry about it. There'll be other times when you're going to think, Wow, okay, come on, get, this is too basic. So the main thing is, though, just to, just try to uh, absorb what you can. And if you need to go back and search it over again, I'll have those notes and stuff on the internet so you can check those out and look them over. And what I'm going to try to do, as I, as I mentioned, is I'll, I'll try to do it as a podcast so you can go and you can listen to it again if you want. Uh, by going up on the website or, or going to the Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast, and then you can just play it and uh, go through it again if you want to. But anyway, I think you'll all get by just fine. And so, like I said, if, if things kind of seem a little too much, don't worry about it. Just pick up what you can, and like I said, by the end, it'll all come together fine. So we're going to start out with a prayer, and this one's from the Feast of St. Jerome. So we could, this is uh, St. Jerome, of course, is the, uh, the first one who translated the Bible in its entirety from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, and it became the standard for the Vulgate. And so he's considered the patron of Scripture and Scripture scholars and Bible readers. All right, so let's all read this. Father, you gave St. Jerome delight in his study of the Holy Scripture. May your people find in your word the food of salvation and the fountain of life. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you, the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Okay, so uh, when it comes to taking notes, feel free to take whatever notes you want. Uh, I'll give you my style, which which is just my style maybe, but when I was in my last few years of school, I stopped taking notes. I would just pay attention and try to listen. 
And uh, generally, I found that worked better, at least for me. So feel free to take notes if you want, but if you don't, I'm not going to worry about it. Like I said, this is a matter of just trying to be familiar with it. Uh, the other thing is, is, is we're, we're learning about the Old Testament. What I'm really trying to do is I'm, I'm really trying to get you to get the mindset of the actual scriptures. So you're not worried so much about, you know, what this school does or that school does or this interpretation, but you're able to get your mind into the times and the culture and understand how God gave us his word and what it means. And so in the context of that, I'll, I'll be talking a lot about different things like history and culture and context and some different words and uh, language and literature. So, but the, the point is to try to get the mindset of the scripture itself, uh, to know the context. And, and we all know the craziness of context because like even today I got, I got some junk mail and it was like, you know, look at the signs of the beast. You know, it's really the Pope and all this kind of weird stuff. And uh, it's, it's a total misreading of the book of Revelation, but it doesn't matter. People can, can do that sort of thing. They, they don't know the context. And so one of the ways that we do that is by having certain parameters. We're able to uh, read it within the context of faith in which it was written. And once you understand that, it, it really helps, you, helps it to come alive in a whole new way. It's like anything. If you want to know, for example, um, an author's viewpoint, you go to the author and you ask the author, and he's going to tell you why he wrote what he wrote in the style that he did. And so if you just take a novel and you interpret it how you want to with no regard to how it was originally written, then you're going to come up with a different uh, novel than the one that was actually written. And so we want to do that with the scripture too. We want to look at it within the context of the faith in which it was written, the culture in which it was written, and also be able to see the broad and general picture about why God gave us that particular scripture in the first place. What does it say about our salvation? And what does it say about how God entered into our world and slowly started forming his people over those many centuries? This is uh, going to be somewhat scholarly, but not over the top. And so I'll throw out some things, but I'm not going to get really deep into a lot of the wordplay and all that sort of thing. Um, I'm going to be using some theology, and there are, there are other ways to read Scripture, by the way, which, I'll, which I will get to, uh, but this is more like a class, so it's going to be less like spiritual devotion. Now, my hope is that once you get the gist of what the you know, academic side is, that you'll be able to apply that to your spiritual side, and it's like a lot of things, once we get a handle on what the context is, then it helps us to be able to, be able to apply it in a, in a good and easy way. All right, another thing that's, this is probably one of the hardest things, and I've already alluded to it, but one of the difficulties we have when we're reading the scriptures, the Bible in general, is that it's, it's kind of an older book. Uh, the earliest books that we have of the Bible, like the New Testament, were written 2,000 years ago. And some of the earliest parts of the Old Testament were written at least 3,000 years ago. So we're talking about a huge span of time in history. And the problem we can have is we can try to make the Bible an American book. You know, so we, we're filtering everything through our American eyes and our Western Enlightenment scientific worldview, which is very foreign from how and why the Bible, the Bible is written in the first place. So I'll ask you to try to think like an ancient and try not to be overly judgmental 
What I mean is like, look at those stupid people. What are they thinking? And why would they do that? Well, don't they know that's wrong? And, you know, it's easy for us to do that because we can look back with the benefit of the revelation of Jesus and his teachings where most of what we're going to be seeing predates Jesus by hundreds at least and sometimes thousands of years. God had to start like a little, you know, his people as like a little child and then go from there. So it's not, you're not going to get the full-blown understanding of the fullness of God's uh, revelation by just reading a, a couple sections of the Old Testament. And so try to get your mindset to what it must have been like um, in the very beginning before Jesus and, and, and everything that we have that we often can take for granted. Okay, so what I'm going to do... Let's see, approach. I probably should say that. All right, limitations. Well, we've only got a couple weekends, so I've got to go a little fast. I'm going to spend more time, I think, in the beginning. So with the first few books of the Old Testament, we're going to spend a little more time in that. So it, it grounds you from the beginning, and then that'll make it easier, I think. So the rest of the Old Testament kind of fits into place. And so I'll talk about some different themes and some different types that come from that. All right, we're going to get right into it now. This is the story of creation. How many of you have ever read the story of creation? All right, this was my guess. So my guess was that most people, when they want to start reading the Bible, the first thing they do is they start Genesis, right? So they open it up and they read the story of creation. And it's kind of a fun story, isn't it? Are you all fairly familiar with it? Yeah? Oh, good for you. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to uh, read this. And I just noticed my translation is going to be different than this one. So I'm going to read it, and then I'll talk about it. All right, so just so we can kind of get into the text a little bit. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form or shape, with darkness over the abyss, and a mighty wind sweeping over the waters, then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. God then separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Evening came, and morning followed the first day. Okay, so this is the first day. Notice from the very beginning, you've got this separation type thing going on. And this is on purpose. In the ancient world, thinking uh, like three to even 4,000 years ago, there were different understandings of this, but the, we'll get to these different countries later on, but the Babylonians, as well as the Sumerians, Mesopotamians, the uh, Hittites, the Greeks to some degree, the Egyptians to some degree, and the Canaanites and the Phoenicians all had this idea of this separation of things and making order out of things. And so God, when he's creating, he's basically making order out of things. So think about it. If I have like a messy desk, what's the first thing I do if I want to get something done? I got to start arranging and cleaning the desk, right? So that's what God's doing. He's taking all the chaos, the primordial uh, things, and he's, he's separating and dividing and putting it all into a type of order. So you got light and darkness and all that. And there are some things that are considered good and some things that are considered bad in general. And so, for example, light is good, darkness is bad. 
Sky is good, water is bad, especially salt water. And you might wonder, well, why is that? Well, it's kind of a culturally conditioned thing. And so what they would look at, and later on we'll see a a little map of how they saw the world in this creation, and you can see what and why that's the case. But think about salt water. um, It's down at the bottom is what they would see. And so there's something scary about the abyss that's underneath. Fresh water was considered better, but light and sky and all that is considered better than dark. So anyway, but the separation is happening at this point. God orders all things and creates the world as good. All right, that's something different and distinct from other um, ancient literature, especially the Babylonian um, Illuminish, which was, was their first original creation story. Uh, so you'll notice that. Evening came, morning followed, the first day. All right, did you notice that when you're talking about light was good, and then God separated the light from the darkness, this is that bringing order to things. He called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Okay, now, then God said, Let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate one body of water from another. God made the dome, and it separated the water below the dome from the water above the dome. And so it happened, God God called the dome sky, evening came, and morning followed the second day. Okay, so I'm going to, let's see if I can fast. Okay, so here's the waters above the firmament. See this little diagram here? This is just, have you ever heard the word phenomenology? And that's basically, you're, you're trying to explain the world in the way that you see it. And so the ancient writers were describing the world in the way they saw it. It was not a scientific document. It wasn't something uh, that they were were trying to make factual statements about scientifically. It predates science by thousands of years. But they were describing how they saw the world. And so the water's above the firmament. Like what happens when it rains? Well, these little floodgates open up and the rain comes down. And then you've got the sun and the moon, and those just kind of circulate around here. You've got the water underneath, and you have these pillars of earth that hold up land. And then you have the, the lakes and this sort of thing that happen with the fresh water that falls from the floodgates up top. And then you have the stars, which often were seen as like little piercings in the dome. So when you talk about this dome, this is kind of the image that they were referring to. All right. So like I said, we've got to think like ancients, right? All right, so now I've got to go back. Then God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered into a single basin, so that the dry land may appear. And so it happened. The water and the sky were gathered into its basin, and the dry land appeared. God called the dry land earth, and the basin of water he called sea. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth vegetation, every kind of plant so that it bears seed and every kind of good, every kind of fruit tree on earth that bears fruit with its seed in it. And so it happened. The earth brought forth vegetation, every kind of plant that bears seed and every kind of fruit tree that bears fruit with its seed in it. God saw that it was good. Evening came and morning followed third day. Then God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them mark the seasons, the days, and the years, and serve as lights in the dome of the sky to illuminate the earth. And so it happened, God made two great lights, the greater one to govern the day, and the lesser one to govern the night, and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky, 
to illuminate the earth and to govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. God saw that it was good. Evening came and morning followed the fourth day. Okay, so I'm going to mention something here. Did you notice he didn't say sun and moon? So instead he's saying, well, the author, I'm assuming it's a guy. Anyway, God made two great lights, one to govern the day and one. Well, we all know what that is, right? But he didn't say sun and moon. Well, the reason is, is because in Hebrew, those words for sun and moon reflect Canaanite language because Hebrew and Canaanite language were, were so close that they could understand each other. It'd be like us and Australians or Great Britain or something. So the Canaanites would understand the Hebrews. The Hebrews would understand the Canaanites. They had a similar language. But the word for sun and moon in the Canaanite language were, were their deities. They were the Canaanite gods. So they didn't want to make people making the mistake of thinking that God created Canaanite gods. So instead of using the word for sun and moon, they would use the you know, light for the night and light for the day. It's demythologizing creation. All right. Does that make sense? Okay. There also, you may not see it just by reading it, but there's a certain parallel that happens as well. Because you have the light of day one and day four. You have water and sky in day two. And you also have birds and fish. And, and these, like the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, parallel the sky and the seas. Okay, so now, let's see. Yeah, we did that. So then God said, let the water teem with abundance of living creatures, and on the earth let the birds, okay, remember the sky, fly beneath the dome of the sky. God created the great sea monsters and all, okay, that's the creatures in the water, that's the fish. See the parallel with the sky in the, in the waters? So God created the great sea monsters and all kinds of crawling living creatures with which the water teems and all kind of winged birds. God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fertile, multiply, fill the earth with the sea of the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and morning followed the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth every kind of living creature, tame animals, crawling things and every kind of wild animal. And so it happened. God made every kind of wild animal. Every good, every kind of tame animal, and every kind of thing that crawls on the ground. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, after our own likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the tame animals, and the wild animals, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, And God said to them, Be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all living things that crawl on the earth. God also said, See, I give every seed-bearing plant on the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food, and all the wild animals, all the birds in the air, and all the living creatures that crawl on the earth. I give all the green plants for food. And so it happened. God looked at everything he had made and found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. Okay, by the way, um, this one here, God said, let the dome be in the middle of the waters. And then after he's discussing the water, evening came and morning followed the second day. But did you notice it didn't say, and God saw that it was good? 
Because remember, water is not good symbolically. You know? So he kind of skipped it. That's the one skip. All right. So thus the heavens and the earth and all their array were completed. On the seventh day, God completed the work he had been doing, and he rested on the seventh day. Why would God rest on the seventh day? He was tired, want to take a nap, right? No, the Sabbath, right? So it's, it's what God is going to be asking the uh, Hebrews, the Israelites, and the Jews to be doing. And all the work. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Okay, now that's very different. In the ancient world, there was this understanding of holiness of place. So they would build their temples, and in the temple or in the city, that would be a place that was considered holy. Now, the Hebrews, they had this understanding of time being holy. And so that was something unique in the ancient world to the Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews. The only exception is, and this is an interesting one, in Mesoamerica, the ancient Mayans had a concept of time as being holy too. But in the whole rest of the Middle East, the, the Jews were the only ones that did that. So that's why the, that it was good. The, sa- the Sabbath day is good as well, and it's made holy because he rested from all the work he had done in creation. So this is the story of the heavens and the earth at their creation. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, there was no field shrub on earth and no grass of the field had sprouted for the Lord God had sent no rain upon the earth and there was no man to till the ground, but a, but a stream was welling up out of the earth and watering all the surface of the ground. And the Lord God formed the man out of the dust and the ground that blew into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Okay, so did you notice what just happened here? There was a transition, wasn't there? So first, it was talking about creation from kind of the cosmos down until you've got the creation of man, human beings, male and female. And then all of a sudden, we have a shift here. And what was originally from the cosmos down, now we're talking about creation from human beings up. So it starts here with human beings, and then it goes up from there. A river rises in Eden to the water in the garden beyond where it divides and becomes four branches. The name of the first is Pishon. That is the one that the one that wins through the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Bedelium and lapis, la, lapis lazuli are also there. That's that kind of pretty little bluish rock thing. The name of the second river is, is Gihon. It is the one that winds all the way through the land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. You may have heard of that. Uh, Cush, by the way, is like northern Egypt. And then it is the one that flows east of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates, which you know, right? So it's building this understanding of creation is kind of happening, happening in that fertile crescent. But more specifically, more than likely, it's, it's talking about it from the area of Mesopotamia. And that's kind of the symbolic beginning of, and it is the, the beginning of, of civilization, but in this creation story that we have, that's kind of the symbolic uh, beginning or garden of Eden, Eden. The Lord God took the man and settled him in the garden to cultivate and care for it. The Lord God made the man this order. You are free to eat of any of the trees in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. From that tree you shall not eat. When you eat from it, you shall die. Okay, did you notice either in both of those stories, actually, there's this preference given almost like vegetarianism. And uh, it's part of that idea of the original harmony. And we'll talk about this a little later. But but try to understand 
it in this way. So when God created everything, he brought order to things. He separated it out. And by separating it out and making it male and female and water and sky and all this, what he was doing is he was creating an original harmony of all of creation. And then he puts human beings in creation as well. And the intention was is that that all of creation, as well as human beings, would live according to that original harmony. We all know what happens, right? So, the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitor, a helper suited to him. So the Lord God formed out of the ground all the wild animals and the birds of the air, and he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called each living creature was then its name. The man gave names to all the tame animals, all the birds of the air and the wild animals, but none proved to be a helper suitable to man. So the Lord God cast a deep spell on the man, and while he was asleep, he took out of his ribs, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. The Lord God then built the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman. When he brought her to the man, the man said, This one is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of, this, out of man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. The man and his wife were both naked yet felt no shame. Because remember, we're still within that perfect harmony. You know, so they're naked, but who cares? You know, they're, they're not ashamed. They, they don't have sin. They're not a fallen being. You may have noticed, too, this is what Jesus quotes when he says that divorce is not according to the original ideal that God intended with creation. And the the point of that is that, well, we need to look at how God intended things to be in that original creation, and that's what we're supposed to strive toward. And so Jesus, when he's talking about divorce, said, well, no, this is the actual image of how husbands and wives are supposed to be uh, made one flesh. And so that's part of the description. As well, the word for breathing in the ancient world, um, the idea of breath or wind that you heard is, is something that is God puts the breath into someone. And like when the, when the spirit, it's like the word ruah, is hovering over the waters, um, that, that's the same word that in Greek, pneumatos, which is where we get the word spirit, Holy Spirit. And so that idea of God putting the spirit or breath into someone Um, comes from that ideal as well. Uh, Also, the bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman. When Jesus was on the cross and they slashed his side and out of his side came water and blood, side, think a rib, right? And that idea of the the water and the blood coming out is symbolic of, some say, you know, baptism and Eucharist, but it's also the church. And so that being born, the church from his side, is similar to Eve coming out of the side of Adam. So there's parallels that we'll see in the New Testament. I won't get into most of those until we have the New Testament. But anyway, that's, that's one as well. Okay, so just really quick. You'll notice that it says, let us make, let us make man in our own image, right? The plural. Notice God didn't say, uh, I'm going to make him in my image. And so this is something that, that uh, people who study the Hebrew... And different scholars, they can't find the reason exactly why God speaks the way that it does. And so they have different theories. You know, some is, well, it's a remnant of the polytheism that was all around Israel. But why would that be the case if, if they systematically took out things like sun and moon? 
you know, and even some of the later ones, you know, they will, they will mention these things differently. And so the best guess that people have, and I mentioned it as a guess, uh, because they don't know why, but what they say is it's like, well, it's kind of the royal we. God is speaking to himself in the reflexive, almost as if like the kings of England would say we, and they talk about their dynasty that goes back. Um, but there's a, a bit of a problem with that. There's no other example in ancient literature that uses the royal we in referring to um, a god or gods or anything like that. So it's just kind of a weird mystery. Now, we can look at it from a Christian context and say, well, yeah, it's the Trinity. But anyway, it is an interesting thing to point out. So, and holiness, because holiness of place as well as time is something unique. I mentioned that already. So the, the Jews, for example, they did have an idea of holiness of place, the temple. Um, but that came a little later. They had the holiness of the land. You know, Israel itself was considered holy, the land. You had to respect the land. The reason why you didn't murder someone in the land so that the blood goes into the soil is it desecrates the holiness which the land itself has. And then in addition to that, when it comes to burial, they had very specific burial rites because if you're going to bury someone, you have to respect the land. That's why when Jesus died, for example, um, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea bought a cave so that they would put Jesus in. Typically what happened is you would put someone in a cave and then after a year you would collect the bones and then bury the bones. And the reason is because even if it were a criminal, that you still had an obligation to bury the person correctly out of reverence for the land itself. Does that make sense? So that's why I heard a, I heard a scholar going on and saying, well, Jesus was crucified. They just would have thrown him over and then they would have left him out to rot and all that. And I'm like, no, they wouldn't have. Because in the Jewish culture, you know, you have to do burial regardless. You know, so it just shows that some of these scholars, they don't really know their, their background so much. All right. I mentioned this already, but there were Babylonian parallels. The Enuma Elish is another creation story. It's a, a story that was written before this story of creation. But in the Enuma Elish, it had, it had some different parallels. There was a conflict between the goddess of salt water, remember the bad salt water? And then there's the god of heaven, Marduk. Marduk kills Tiamat, and out of that creates the world out of her body, and then the story ends. There's a creating of the sun and the moon and the stars and man. And then there's the temple of Marduk in Babylon, and that's the conclusion of that. So it's like the creation is this uh, culmination in the temple of Marduk in Babylon. And so you can see that it's got some parallels. But what the uh, ancient uh, Hebrew authors were doing is they demythologized um, that understanding of creation, and they made sure that it followed a monotheistic understanding of creation, while at the same time preserving... Uh, well, what would later become Israel, Israeli theology or, or Jewish theology. At first, you've got two options here. At first, God is called Elohim, and then after a while, then God is called Yahweh. So in the, in the first part where it's, where it's uh, creation down, it's Elohim is the word that's used, and that just means God. El, anytime you hear the word El in Hebrew, that means God, and... Uh, Every time you hear the word Yahweh, that is the word that comes from, well, it's basically Moses in the burning bush when God revealed himself and his name in that way. And so, so you've got Yahweh and Elohim, two words being used. 
And some people theorize, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, they theorize that there are different stories that got written that got combined at some point in history. So like there was this first story of creation, then there was a second story of creation. After a bunch of centuries, a redactor takes both of those stories and combines it. So you have the first one on top of the second. Um, There's some benefits to that, and there's some problems with it. Uh, The problem is it doesn't show the unity of the text as well. The benefit is it does show some of those differences. So like Elohim and Yahweh Yahweh and uh, using those different words and and the way that uh, the style and the approach is slightly different, as well as some of the theologies are a little different. Okay, so here's another important part about this that eventually, I didn't read it all, but you all know that there's the fruit and then they eat the fruit. By the way, it wasn't an apple more than likely, you know. It just says fruit. But you think about the fruit that would have been around in Mesopotamia or in the Middle East. So we're talking things like figs, pomegranates, and stuff like that. But regardless, it doesn't say. But after eating the fruit, that's a sign of disobedience. And because of that disobedience, that affects and disrupts the original harmony that God intended creation to be in the first place. And then from that point on, it, it slowly starts infecting the world. And then it gets to the point where there's like a, a, a second creation almost, and that would be after the flood. All right, so basically sin goes out, and it starts infesting and gets worse and worse, and then all of a sudden God's like, okay, we're going to start over, so there's a flood. And then it seems like the flood would have worked, And there would have been this new creation, but, well, that didn't really work because what happens in the next scene? Well, there's drunk Noah, and then all of a sudden incest and different things happening. So, you know, that didn't work either. But the point is that what God intends the original creation to be is projected in the first part before the original sin. And then eventually there are these repeated new creations that happen. Uh, To give you an example of some of those, So you've got the flood story, and then you have Jeremiah. They're talking about new creation as well, right? In this new covenant. And then as Christians, we understand that there is a new creation that happens with Jesus' death and resurrection. It's not just Jesus rose from the dead and isn't it wonderful, but Jesus' rising from the dead begins that process of the new creation that God wanted to fix from the disruption of the original creation and that original harmony that existed from the beginning of time. The book of Revelation talks about that coming to a culmination when it is the new heavens and the new earth. Have you ever read that part in Revelation? So you have this coming together of heaven and earth. And what what that's referring to is this is where God completes his plan. So after the death and resurrection of Jesus, he begins his plan of restoration. It's in process. But there will come a time sometime in the future where there's this coming together of heaven and earth. And then that will be when that original harmony that God intends is made actual. Okay, so what that means is God is not going to blow up the earth and say, boy, I'm going to blow up all those sinners and isn't that wonderful? Let's go ahead and destroy the earth because it doesn't matter. Um, It does because this is part of God's creation. Both heaven and earth are part of God's creation and they both are called uh, to reflect God's glory and perfection. All right, anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself about a few thousand years and a Messiah and everything else. Okay, so we do have some tools and resources. I just wanted to go a little bit into the, the text so that we get an idea of what 
Bible study can be. Because I think what happens is sometimes it's just, well, it's so overwhelming. And, and uh, you know, but it's kind of nice to get in and, and, and kind of meet some of those new discoveries and find these new insights. Okay, so first of all, probably the most important thing you guys can have is a good Bible. All right, so I've got here, this is a New Jerusalem. But what I really love about this Bible is not necessarily the translation. This particular version has the best notes and commentary. So it's got before, before each section and before each book, it has a few pages of explanation. In addition to that, it's got really elaborate footnotes. And so as you're reading along, you can just read along and then read the footnotes, and it'll help you to understand what's going on. And it's a little expensive, but you can find these on Amazon for about 30 bucks. Otherwise, they're about 50 or something like that. It's the New Jerusalem Bible, but you have to make sure that you get the one with the notes and commentary and maps. Can I borrow your other one for a second? If you go into just a regular store and you try to get a New Jerusalem Bible, this is usually what you'll get. And it has no notes and commentary, and it's a lot thinner. It's still a decent translation, but the whole point is you want to be able to have some reference. So if you have a good study Bible, that, that means you don't have to keep looking things up with all these different reference books and things like that. You get the basics all in one book. And so anyway, if, if you're kind of getting into Scripture, um, there's this one, and someone has a... A New American Study Bible. Okay, so that's the other one. Could you hold it up, please? There's the softbound and there's a hardbound. It's called the New American Study Bible. And there's another one here, I think, right? Yeah. So could you hold that up? So there's the hardbound one, Catholic Study Bible. And that is similar. In my opinion, the translation might be better in the New American because it's the one that we use at Mass. Um, In my opinion... I think the notes and the commentary are better in the New Jerusalem. It tends to be a little more relevant and a little more sound theologically. It sounds weird I'm saying that because the New American Bible is the one that is put together by the U.S. bishops. Um, But what I mean by that is that they're more concerned with notes and commentary around the translation, whereas this one's more concerned with notes and commentary around the original context and the meaning. Does that make sense? So that's still good. But if I'm going to choose one or the other because of the study materials, I would go for the New Jerusalem. If you want a good Bible that's still a good study Bible that uh, matches up with what you're going to be hearing at Mass, the, the Catholic study Bible is probably the way to go. Does that make sense? Okay. In addition, I think you all had at least the option of this book. It's a reading of the Old Testament. It, it's always a hard thing to find a good resource to use as a commentary. Because, to be honest with you, there aren't a lot of really good ones out there. And some tend to be either overly academic or some tend to be overly pietistic. And you want to have a, something with a little bit of a balance so that you're not going to be, you know, kind of going one direction or the other. You just kind of want to get the, uh, the, the basic understanding and you want good scholarship without it being crazy scholarship. Anyway, so this one is by Lawrence Boat. He since has passed away, but they did a revised version. And uh, Richard Clifford and Daniel Harrington, uh, both of them are scripture scholars as well. So it's kind of got a pretty good balance. You can get the facts out of this, but keep in mind it's not a devotional book. 
It's more along the lines of trying to understand the culture and the theology and the history and all that sort of thing. But it's still very good. So if, if you want to kind of keep up on things, have this book read by next week, and you'll be good. How many of you do computers and stuff like that? So quite a few. There are computers and computer software. There's computer websites. There are different apps. On your phone, for example, there's one called Olive Tree that you can find if you have a smartphone. Olive Tree. And then there's... uh, The problem is there used to be Bible software and was all extremely expensive. And uh, um, you can get most of this stuff for much more reasonable price nowadays. And so what I tend to use is like linear Bibles. You can find those on... uh, I also do the Olive Tree one on my on my computer just because I can buy translations and have good, you know, Catholic ones and modern ones instead of just using the King James. But they do interlinear Bibles where you can put different translations side by side. You can also have the Greek and Hebrew with the English translation and these sort of things. To be honest, most of you will probably never need to do that. Or you'll probably never need to use any of this stuff. But if you ever want to go down that road, you can talk to me and I'll help you out to find some of those things. Um, there, there are some things you can like click the words and then different, it shows all the various meanings and all this sort of thing. So, like I said, most of you will probably not need that sort of thing, but for those of you who might just talk to me at some point. Okay. Hmm. Bible Atlas is kind of a good one too. Some of this you can do on your computer. If you just, if you just say like Bible Atlas, do a search. You can find different maps and things like that. Um, Some maps are better than other maps. I'm going to show you, actually, with some of the maps that I've pulled off uh, the Internet that I'll use, but then I'll kind of show you some of the mistakes they have (laughs) at the same time. Um, One of the problems and one of the limitations we have in in looking at Old Testament stuff is we don't have a lot of... um, it, It happened so long ago. And it's not like people took out books and wrote documents on everything that was going on. They didn't have the, the same understanding of secular histories. Uh, just to give you one example, the Egyptians, in all their 2,000 years before the, you know, the more modern era of the, of the ancient Egyptian empires, they never lost a battle. Now, you know they did lose battles, right? But the way they would write about things is like, well, the pharaoh went in and he pretty much went in and, you know, and kind of clubbed them and everything was he smited them. And, you know, it, it describes all the stuff. But then you'll see other cultures that they were supposedly smiting saying, well, we smited the Egyptians, you know. So uh, one of the problem was that that you don't hear a lot of good histories. And there's as much good archaeology as we have. We don't have everything. And so it's just to give you one example, there's only one thing that they have that even mentions the house of David, you know, and so we're talking, David was only a thousand years before the time of Jesus. And so therefore there are some people that take the mindset that, well, if we can't find archeological evidence of the existence of David, he must not have existed. So the Jews must've made it all up and it doesn't exist and all this sort of thing um, because they put too much faith and trust in something that's just, you know, the record's just not there, you know. So, so what we have to do instead is we have to do a combination of things. So you use archaeology, 
you use histories, different written histories, and you also use internal evidence that you can find in the Bible. And I'll show some of that as we go through. And then once you get a combination of this, you can get a fairly reliable thing. But there's, there are still some things that we don't know for sure. Like, for example, I asked Kelsey, uh, our youth minister, I said, when do you think the Exodus took place? You all know what the Exodus is, right? All right, so, so when do you think the Exodus happened? 1500? Okay. Anyone else? That's a good guess. The, the thing is, is that we don't exactly know. And we have some guesses, but one guess is saying, well, it's around 1250 under Ramses II. And then other ones are saying, well, no, it's actually in the 1200s. I mean, in the uh, 1400s. And then some say it's like, well, this was part of the Hyksos invasion and all this stuff that, you know, came out of that. And um, like I said, the problem is we don't have a lot of collaborating evidence to really pinpoint it. So sometimes you, and I was kind of, I kind of dug into it a little bit thinking that I'd kind of get the answer before I started class. But anyway, it was, (laughs) we still don't know. So, so we have to be comfortable with that. And and just realize we don't know everything that there could be to know because there's just too many holes in, in external evidence. So I guess is what I guess I'm saying. Okay, so tell you what. We'll take maybe a... We'll break until 7 o'clock. And then what I'll, what I'll do when we start up again is um, I'll just, if you come up with any questions or anything about what we've covered so far, then just ask and then we'll go from there. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.